Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Welcome to the Home Education Matters podcast, the podcast that answers all your home education questions. So I'm Diane Wills and I'm a home educating parent and I'm here with Eleanor today, who's the host of the podcast. And we've also got um, Tara with us today. Um, Tara, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, morning and thanks for having me. Yeah, my name's Tara. I'm a, um, I'm a parent of a nearly 20 year old um, neurodivergent young man who's amazing and um, we, are, we are a neurodivergent family or neurodiverse family um, and uh, for my day job I'm a lecturer and a researcher um, in autism and uh, I also uh, run the parent carer um, or co-chair the parent carer forum in Plymouth and um, I have a, a parent support group part of the NAS for the for the Princeton branch so I'm sort of pretty much immersed in the community the autism community for most of my waking hours yeah and it's great yeah so you're pretty busy then um and I'm also the parent of um, a home educated neurodiverse child um as uh, as we kind of s- uh, notice that neurodiversity tends to be peppered through the family so I think all of my family are pretty neurodiverse but I have one child who's got a diagnosis <laughs> I was I this leads me on to an interesting little segue right that happens right at the start which is an unusual one but do you think that the increase in diagnoses of neurodivergent conditions is because we are now more aware of it and our diagnosing is better or um or is it that for some reason there's an increase in it research actually doesn't know um and it, it's it's one of the main um questions of of you know my sort of day-to-day research that I do at the university is is what what is driving this 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 hike in you know in diagnoses of autism um and i i i was interested because you know, something when I was, a, I mean, I was a, I was at school in the 80s, giving away my age here, but, um, and we, you know, it was, we didn't, ha- I didn't, never heard of it. From that perspective, I look back and I reflect on, on my education and actually it was there. It was always there, um, except we had huts lined up in our school, lots and lots of huts sort of, uh, sort of separate from the rest of the, the main building. And these huts were called, and I hate it, it still still fills me with horror when I think about it, they were called remedial classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think back, and I think how many of those children um, were autistic but undiagnosed or had, you know, ADHD but didn't know. Um, and as a child who was in one of those classes for some time, and spent most of her education outside the headmaster's office. I can really, I can really empathise with with sort of why people want a diagnosis now. They want understanding. They want people to you know to to be able to take a, a, another's perspective. Um, so yeah, so I, I think it's I think the answer is it's always there. We've always if it wasn't for autistic people, we'd all still be living in caves. I, I absolutely <laughs> firmly believe that. 
Yeah, I think it's always there. I just think we're more aware now. However, that said, when we do the statistics in research, um, that doesn't always play out. There does seem to be an increase in um, in neurodivergence in 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 the number of young people who are you know who are being born neurodivergent. So um, who knows? Maybe we'll get an answer soon. But because we actually don't have the etiology of of, of autism, um, it's it's very difficult to to actually give a conclusive answer. And and um, so I think you know we will we will continue to speculate. I think for a while, and the research needs to continue in that area. Okay, so I've got a number of questions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get into them later because to begin <laughs> with, I'd like to just I'd like to just sort of get a handle on as somebody from a neurotypical family. If I was home educating, and it's difficult when you're out of the system because if you're in the system and your child is in school, invariably teachers play a role in picking up these kind of things. But if you assume that I'm a home educating parent and one of my children, I think is autistic or may possibly be autistic what sort of firstly what is it and secondly what sort of things can we look out for as home educating parents okay so what is autism is uh dependent on um your own perspective so if you if i if i was to give you a clinical answer i would reach to my bookcase and pull out the dsm-5 or the icd and i would read you a list of basically deficits mm. which I, I won't do because i find it abhorrent um so this but, is sorry to interrupt so this is yeah. ways in which they would compare a neurodivergent child with a neurotypical child and say they're not able to do this they're not then so right so it's it's more like a kind of like like Simone de Beauvoir would say when you say a, what a woman is based on how she's not a man it's mm-hmm. the same thing with a neurodivergent child is what they are because they're diverging from a norm they're di- diverging from the what is neuronormative yeah absolutely um and unfortunately in our society that 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 you know anything that diverges from from the norm um, tends to be held up as being, um, how do I say this tactfully? Um, actually, I don't need to be tactful because it's, it's, it's the responsibility of the non-autistic population that this happens. Um, the, it tends to be looked at in a negative light. Mm. Um, and it, it need not be. Um, you know, like I said before, I think we'd all still be living in caves if it wasn't for neurodivergence. Um, we certainly wouldn't have won the Second World War. We'd all be, you know, if it wasn't for Alan Turing, who was notably autistic. Um, so, you know, all of these things, we can look back in history and say that, that it's, it's, you know, it's actually a positive thing in a lot of ways. Um, but if you want to know what autism is, you would clinically look at a manual. Mm-hmm. And Emmanuel would say that there was um, a, a deficit in um, commu- um, reciprocal communication and forming relationships, forming and maintaining relationships would be a deficit in, uh, note the word deficit, um, which is said all the time. It's not a strengths-based uh, document. Um, there would be a deficit in uh, in terms of interests so it would be restricted and repetitive behaviors so those those are two what they call axes of of you know um there's that communication and then those restricted interests if you are neurotypical your restricted interests are normally called passions or pursuits 
So you can see the double standard that, that sits in when you when you add a medical label to it. So yeah, so that's 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 medically what what, what autism is. So this this difficulty with communication. Um, if you ever if you're ever interested in a more balanced view, um, you could look up uh, Damien Milton, um, who is the uh, writer of what they call the double empathy problem. Um, he he sort of describes autism, and he's a he's an autistic professor, brilliant man. I saw him speak at the 2018 Autistica um, conference, and he was so eloquent when he explained this, um, far more eloquent than I can be. But he he explained that, you know, double empathy is, is this position where, you know, you have two different minds, both misunderstanding each other. It is not a case that autism does not understand, you know, neurotypicality. It's that neurotypicality does not understand autism. So there is a there is a double-edged sword here. And this this was evidenced by a, a brilliant woman at Edinburgh University called Catherine Crompton, who did this fantastic study. And uh, I wish I thought of it. She she um, did this research and engaged this, this group of people in something called a diffusion chain. So she got this group of people who were autistic and this group of people who were non-autistic. And she put them together in three groups, a group of autistic people, a group of non-autistic people and a mixed group. And she measured their ability to navigate this diffusion chain, which is a, a chain of information passed from one to the other. We would know it incorrectly as Chinese whispers. Um, and she she measured them on two axes, their, their accuracy of information tra transmission and the rapport they had with their with their, you know, their colleagues. Well, lo and behold, the non-autistic people did very, very well in their information transmission. They, they you know, n not a problem at all. They were very high accuracy and they reported a good level of rapport. And um, then she went to the, the autistic group. Now, they were slightly more accurate. <laughs> and that's not a surprise. Um, and they also reported a high level of rapport. But when she went to the mixed group, the accuracy fell, uh, you know, diminished and the rapport was, was not great. So what you've got here is not a case of can't communicate but a difference in communication. And I think we need to remember that when we talk about um, autism and autistic people. Is there an element of, of arguing that if the, I don't know what percentage of the population are autistic, but I'm guessing it's reasonably low. So is there, is there an argument that if the vast majority, like 90% of people are all communicating on one kind of radio wavelength, that the onus is on the minority, if they want to be understood, to also communicate on that one? Or is the, is the flip argument that actually, as a majority, it is our, it is our sort of duty to to make sure that everyone is included. Yeah. So the, the, the last word that you used is 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 the key there is inclusion. So, you know, there is a there's an old adage that um, a society is judged on how it uh, treats its most vulnerable members, and you know when you other a group of people, when you you know start othering people. Um, you inherently make them, <clears throat> excuse me, make them vulnerable um, because you're denying them the, the, the same opportunities as, as, you know, as, as if you like, the, the majority have. Um, and that, that can apply to not just autistic people, but it can apply to, you know, it can apply to race, it can apply to sex, it can apply to uh, gender, all sorts of things. So, you know, we, when we apply this critically and we think about it, there is, too, there is actually so much othering going on in society. Um, and when you look at the group of people that are supposedly neurotypical, and then you take out all of the other aspects, maybe they're, they're, maybe they're old, like me, 
Um, so, you know, I, I, I suddenly realized I became invisible at 50. Um, and it was quite a shock that they might be female. You know, they might identify as female. Um, they might identify as trans. They might, um, they, you know, there might be, and some of them might be homeless. Um, they might be, you know, chronically disabled in other ways. When you start pulling out all of these things, actually what you're left with is a lot of very minority groups. And actually it pushes what would be what you're describing as the neurotypical person into a minority group. Because we're all, we all have our own, you know, things going on. So in order to be fully inclusive, we've got to change our mindset. Mm. And it's all, we've always expected autistic people to come to us to make the effort. So not only have they got to navigate a world that isn't built for them, not only have they got to um, communicate in a way that is often painful, um, not only are they expected uh, to change their authentic selves in order to be accepted, but we make them do all the work as well. And we still expect them to hit targets. Oh, they're not achieving at school. Oh, they're not doing this. If a child's trying to navigate an environment in school, that is all they can do half the time because it is so overwhelming because school is not built for the autistic child. So for me, no. The onus is on those who have the spare capacity, um, the excess capacity, who have the easier ride to make some of the adjustments and the, 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 you know, the changes. It's a bit like us as English speakers. There's so few of us who speak a second language. I don't speak a second language and I berate myself for it because it's lazy and I should speak another language. But I'm English. So, you know, I, you know, everywhere you go, you can pretty much be understood. And it's, it's wrong. It's, 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 it's a privilege we need to let go of. So no, that's a very long answer. Sorry, Eleanor. To um, what should we <laughs> we be doing? I, I get a bit on my soapbox with these things because like the injustice of it reaches the core of me, and I, I find it very difficult sometimes to keep a lid on that. So to anybody who's listening, sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, I empathise. Yeah. As as a card carrying feminist, I I regularly get on rants about otherness. So yeah, that's fine. I completely agree with you on that one. When it comes to getting a sense of diagnosis, so I'm not talking about formal diagnosis, I'm talking about that kind of pre-diagnosis that as a parent you might do. For example, my daughter is dyslexic and she's been home, home educated all the way through. And so uh, when she was about six or seven, she could read really well, but her writing was pretty awful. And sometimes she put the letters back to front. And I just was like, is this dyslexia? Like, is it because my my knowledge of dyslexia was that it was all about reading? Um, her reading was like extremely good. And anyway, I did like my own kind of little kind of sense of what was happening. I, I gave her little bits of writing to do. And then I went and got her formally diagnosed. So what sort of things can a parent look out for if they suspect their child might be autistic or and and would just like to explore that as a possibility so i think the first thing to say is every single child is different there are different presentations of autism and and dr stephen shaw was quite clear when he said when you've met one person he says with autism but one autistic person you've met one autistic person um i like to change it because it's you know and he's right. Um, he's absolutely right. And Stephen Shaw is autistic himself. Um, so 
I think when you're looking for classic signs, there can be different things. So there can be um, communication differences, uh, an absence of pointing, waving, something we call referencing. So referencing is that, that thing where a child's trying to get your attention and they might look at you and then look to, or you might try and get the child's attention say, oh, look at that. And they'll look at you and see where you're looking. And they'll, oh, they might, you might point and they follow your point. So they're, they're, they're looking at your eyes to see where you're looking. That's that kind of referencing. Maybe a lack of joint attention, which that also that feeds into is that that sort of um, reciprocal feedback. Um, you know, I look at something, you they look at something, and then they look at you, and there's that, that anticipation. You can see that very often, quite you know, in early, very early childhood, and that can often be missing, but it can often be there, um, and it's very difficult. And that doesn't mean to say there is autism or there isn't autism. Um, it's very, very difficult. It tends to be uh, a constellation, I prefer to use the term, a constellation of, um, of things that might pique your, your, your curiosity around, oh, could this be a neurodivergent you know, uh, situation? Now, for, I, I, on my own experience and uh, the children that I've worked with and my own family, we, there was great joint attention, there was great speech, the, the classic one is that the phone rings or the door the doorbell goes, um, you know, and the child immediately in not in in typ what they call typical development, the child will immediately look to mum or dad or whoever the primary caregiver is, because that's their person of safety, um, and they will look and then they will see what the reaction is on the parent's face. You know, does the parent look scared? Does the parent look happy? Is the parent surprised? And that child takes its emotional cue from the reaction of the parent. Sometimes that can be missing. For us, it wasn't. So those are some of the things. The, the, the other thing that you, you might have is, a, is a, uh, things like language development. Now that's, that's quite an interesting one. All children go through an echoic phase where they echo back words that, um, you know, words that have been said to them. That tends to fade and then more sort of developed language comes through and, and reciprocal language comes through. Echolalia can la in, in, in autism can actually extend. It, 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 also le it also does dissipate after a while, but I mean, and, it can, and on the flip side, it actually can stay forever. But the, the point being, and speech and language can be very good for helping with that, um, pronoun reversal is quite a common thing, you know, in language. Um, you know, you say, okay, they'll, they'll say, can, you know, can you, and they're talking about themselves. So things like that can, then can be, in terms of language development, can be quite, quite a key indicator. Nonverbal cues like pointing, waving, joint attention, that kind of thing, that's, that, that's quite common. And this is all classic signs. They can and can't be present. It, that's, that's the difficulty. The other thing to bear in mind is girls tend to present differently. Very often, girls are not diagnosed until high school. And that's largely because girls are incredible mimickers, which actually looks like typical development. And maybe it is a little bit. But what happens is, is when girls reach high school, non-autistic girls, you will see, will take a particular trajectory. They, 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 they go in one direction very quickly. Um, socially and emotionally, they change. Whereas autistic girls, 
tend not to follow that pathway and actually follow a little bit more of a, of, of a mate of sort of like where the boys are, which is kind of less, you know, is, 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 is that less sudden change. And that tends to be when the wheels fall off. And that tends to be the danger point for, for autistic girls in terms of their mental health. You know, girls are often diagnosed with many things before they're actually diagnosed as autistic. And that is incredibly damaging. So I think, you know, we need to we need to improve our understanding of, of the female perspective of autism. But going back to what you were saying in terms of uh, in terms of sort of classic signs, things like, that people forget that, that auto, along with autism comes physiological differences. So, a lot of, you know, a lot of children who are autistic also have gut issues. There can be difficulties around choice of food, eating foods, foods and then suddenly refusing. So if you get something called um, some clinicians, and I don't like this term, um, called regressive autism, children who meet their milestones until the age of about two and then suddenly stop talking, stop referencing, stop you know, joint attention wanes, that kind of thing, L language is lost, um, that can be obviously a big sign that the brain is, because we our brain undergoes a huge change in around two years of age. We go through a massive amount of what they call neural pruning, so um, where the pathways are set down and they're altered and, and you know things are lost and things are gained, and it's, 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 a, it's a very complicated, we could spend hours just talking about that one phase of development. Um, but it's an interesting time, and that tends to be if, you, if you're going to see a, a structure, you know, sort of a, a brain structural change, that may be an indicator in some of the more obvious um, signs. Another thing will be um, perhaps things like low muscle tone. You know, children who are autistic sometimes, sometimes not always, but um, especially those who are not climbers and who are perhaps not it's more more physical might have difficulty with muscle tone, especially core muscle tone, crossing the midline, that kind of thing. All things we look for in physical development. And the other thing is toe walking, which is quite common. But I, you know, I know plenty of, you know, non-autistic children who toe walked for a long time. So it is, you know, it is, you, you can't look at just one or two things and say, oh, look, my child is, you know, you can either be excited or, or worried about it, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, my child is neurodivergent. You don't know. We, mm. we, we absolutely don't know. It's, it's, it's a case of a lot of the pieces of the puzzle have to come together before a diagnosis is made. And a lot of people don't really need a diagnosis because their child is just unique as they are and, and they're, they're, ha they're happy with that. But if you, you know, if you want to pursue that, then those are the sorts of things that clinicians would look for. So there's lots more, but I'm going on a bit now, so I'll shut up. Well, I just wondered about um, so some of my experiences with Rosa, and we didn't we didn't even know know anything about autism when when she was quite little. We noticed that she was um, quite different, um, and some of the things we noticed were um, so like she would play with other children, but she would she would play beside this other child. So it looked from a distance like she was playing with with another child but actually when you kind of got close what she was doing was just doing her own thing sitting next to another child um so there wasn't that kind of interactive kind of process although she plays thought, with her sisters i thought all children did that i thought all children oh. did that because i thought that was called parallel play and that's just a like a part of development in children i think probably rosa just did it for a bit longer maybe <laughs> you're, you're she's still doing it right. <laughs> yeah. And um, I guess the other things we kind of noticed were, were 
all the and again lots of you know all, lots of children do this but um we kind of just noticed it more with rosa the transitional kind of phases of life were really difficult for her so getting out of the house getting into the car getting out of the car coming out of you know those transitional points uh were really really difficult for her um and she had what i think would be described clinically as um, pathological demand avoidance. So <laughs> she would really, really um, not be happy when, when we asked her to, to do things. And she was a runner, she would run. Uh, she would run away and scream. And we had a few kind of scary moments where we, you know, we kind of uh, were worried about her safety. And then when she was at school, we had the typical kind of what I would call fizzy, kind of fizzy bottle kind of effect. So she'd come out of school, she'd have been fine in school all day. We wouldn't even really get to the car before she completely kind of exploded, you know, because she'd been holding it in all day. The other thing I kind of realized, I suppose, and again, this is not necessarily just an autistic kind of um, experience, but like we'd like, so I've always taken my children to the theater, for instance, like, you know, children's performances. I remember taking her and we talked about it afterwards and she'd gone with um, her siblings and her siblings had understood the story, had understood the narrative. I realised when I spoke to Rosa, she had made absolutely no sense of this narrative and that happened quite a lot. But yeah, I, I, otherwise, I, I, I don't think you, you would never have realised that she was an autistic child because she was so skillful, such a skillful child at kind of masking and trying to fit in. I think, as you say, Tara, it's slightly more obvious now she's in her teenage years because um, she isn't following that typical girl, you know, trajectory of doing all the girl stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've listed there so many things. I'll, I'll, I'll tell sort of come back to each one if that's if, you, if you'd like me to but I mean the what I was talking about was probably sub two you know uh, er, very early development and you you've, yeah. you've, you've actually talked about something as they as they get older which is absolutely mm -hmm. vital um I mean that parallel play you referred to Eleanor is is is, is a common thing it, it does happen it is a, a stage of of development that's how we you know how we learn how to you know how to model from other people model for other children but you're right Diane it's it's you know, when you do it for a lot longer, the interactions get more sophisticated with children in a non-autistic way, whereas autistic children equally crave interactions that are sophisticated, more sophisticated mm -hmm. in their way, on yeah. their terms. And when when that is not met by understanding and uh, an understanding of what's important to that child, what happens is you just see the other child step away. Mm. It's it's not a case of autistic children isolating themselves, but more a case of autistic children being isolated. Because non-autistic children, you know, neurotypical children don't necessarily understand the, you know, again, we're back to a clash of understanding. You know, it's not a case of autistic children can't do this. A lot of the time it's because that's not what they value. That's not what's important to them. Yeah, I was I was also thinking, I think there is something about the interaction, because what I've also always noticed about Rosa and some other children that I know who, you know, who, who are diagnosed as autistic is is a bit of hypercriticality of others. And Rosa is hypercritical of her sisters and, you know, 
you know other children because as far as they as far as Rose is concerned they're not doing things right they're not doing things in the right way and so you know as if we're kind of if we've learned some of those social cues we kind of you know we we might think these things but we kind of learn to just back off a little bit don't we and and not to express that criticality where Rosa hasn't learned how to do that so um she you know she will continue to make very critical comments of others um and that's something that i've i've noticed is quite common as well and i think other children back off sometimes i wonder if that's possibly where this idea that autistic children lack empathy comes from the the fact yeah. that there's almost like kind of not a filter and it, because i know quite a few autistic children i relish their company because it's really nice to have people who just tell you tell you what it is like all the time but I wonder whether that's partly where this idea has come that they don't have empathy because, or they, they have low empathy because they say things that are hurtful. We're very sensitive beings, humans, aren't we? We don't take criticism very well, but autistic people are generally truth sayers. I, I, I remember as a, as, a, as a young, as a sort of a young woman being told repeatedly that I was a bit too blunt. Those, those were the words that were, were used. Um, and, and many suggestions of why don't you think about what you're going to say before it comes out of your mouth. And it's really difficult because that kind of inhibition requires extra layers of processing. And, you know, it's um, it's not necessarily it's, it's tiring. It, it's, it's really tiring. It's far easier to be a truth sayer. And I find autistic people generally are truth sayers. And, you know, the, the reason why that, that perhaps they're more critical um, or, you know, criticize more often is largely around if you talk to a lot of autistic people who are quite vocal about um, the autistic perspective they will tell you that they they feel very strongly about social justice yeah. um equity be and and that might come across as perhaps being a bit rule governed so um i think back to when my son was younger and and you know he used to line a lot of things up and uh, he would line his cars up, they, he would line his blocks up, and he'd put things in order, in colour order or whatever. It was incredibly skilled, I have to say, the ability to visualise subtle differences in things and then be able to, you know, map it across a, a, um, a, like a spectrum of colour or to build a tower taller than he was out of little wooden blocks by the age of 18 months. You know, we actually only expect him to build about seven or eight high at that point. You know, he was building them up, you know, way above his head and watching them balance and looking at the way the gravity was moving. The, and it was only, you know, less than two years old. And the, the skill that that took, we dismiss as being wrong. But actually, that ability, that attention to detail is an innate strength that we often overlook because it does not meet our normed expectations. And what we do is we quash it. Now, when we run out of structural engineers or people who can see things in detail, we will look to the autistic community to fill that gap. And, it, you know, for, for me, I think we need to look at children on a strengths basis um, and look at what they can do rather than what they can't do. And if they can't do something or don't want to do something or don't like doing something, why are we forcing them to do it? I think what you're saying, you know, in terms of development, yes, their development looks different because they bring different strengths. I mean, I'll go back brief, briefly to um, your, power, your, your transitions. I mean, I, I've met several children who find who have extreme difficulty with transitions right down to things like passing thresholds. So I've worked with young children who struggle to go through a door. Now, you and I might look at each other and go, 
okay, I really don't understand that. <laughs> what is the problem? Well, the problem is what's on the other side is, ne- is not known. It's unpredictable. We don't know. You know, you and I don't know what's through a door. We know what's going to greet us. I mean, it could just be our home or it could be a mad axman on the other side of the door. We don't know. Well, if you feel the anxiety of that not knowing every time you pass through a door, imagine what your day is like. You know, it's exhausting. No wonder children have meltdowns. I think, you know, you mentioned the Coke bottle effect. Well, if you imagine all of these things impacting on a child throughout the day, especially children of school age, their safe place is home. The safe people are their parents or their caregivers. You know, you are their, their anchor point. And I remember picking my son up from school. Um, and I've, I've, I've written about this in, in, in several papers and, and things. And, and, you know, I would get to him and he would see me and he would physically melt into a puddle. He would cry. He would throw himself on the floor. He would just absolutely break down. And I had about three weeks of this and I'm thinking, oh, this is, you know, this, this, something's not right at school here. I mean, we already knew he, he, he was autistic, but um, he was diagnosed very, very early. But, um, you know, he, why was he so emotionally upset when he saw me? It wasn't me because he would then cling to me and he wouldn't let go and he remained subdued for a long time. And he would ask if it was school the next day and if it wasn't, he'd pick up. But if it was school, he would not. And something had to change. Um, and that's what we call the Coke bottle effect, where they hold it in all day and then they see the person that they're most safe with and it all comes out because it's relief. It's pure relief. Um, so I think, you know, we, when we when we see children who, who you know, impact that, we need to look at the, the environment they've just spent all their time in, not the person that they pride in front of, <laughs> mm. which tends to be the finger pointing bit. You mentioned that when they go to school, it's just this kind of accumulative overwhelm that then explodes when they are back at home in their safe environment. And do you think that that is because they've spent the whole time at school trying to appear to be normative in some way? And if that is the case, you're nodding, so okay. So if that, if that is the case, is there a an argument to say that you need to teach autistic children strategies for them to be able to manage how they interact with the wider world when they get older because no matter how much we may want to change the world it's not going to change the world within the next 10 years although actually I mean things change very quickly but realistically there's going to be an element where they are going to find this overwhelm on a regular basis when they get older is there a point at which you want to equip them with skills to be able to handle the outside world or is it a case of empowering them to say you know it's okay for me to be different and that will help the overwhelm i'm reminded of something dr naomi fisher said and i i'm 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 very cautious about equipping the children i i guess i agree we you know all children we, we, we school all children you know whether whether we like it or not we, we do as parents we we teach them stuff I think when we when we look at equipping children, getting them used to something um, that they perhaps don't like, and we all have to do things we don't like. Yes, I, I, I appreciate that. We run the risk of embedding trauma. So from my perspective is when you're a child, if you find something difficult you might want to have a bit of practice at it until you master it yeah so you get you get to mastery we learn how to read we learn how to write i'm not saying we don't do those things um but when it comes to the sensory environment and the the the, the, the bit of the world where 
let's face it, if you didn't do it, it's not a big deal. So I'll give you two examples. When my son was younger, we lived in Australia and um, he grew up there. And it was a quite, it was, you know, barring a few things like the, the sort of Coke bottle incident I told you about, it was pretty idyllic for him. Um, and it was fairly straightforward. You know, school was great and all the rest of it. But there were two things that he struggled with. One was water. And the other one was sensory overload at the cinema and things breaking. And his first experience of the cinema, the movie broke down. And it was a Thomas the Tank movie. And it took us five or six years, maybe, of slow exposure to uh, get him back into a movie theatre. And he didn't like water. He, he used to love to swim in England before we left. He was a baby. But he had a, a slight scare um in in my uh, uh relative's pool it, was, it wasn't unsafe he just got splashed and but he inhaled at the same time and it scared him and a lot of our children are what they call one trial learners so if, if the first experience they have of something is really poor that's it it becomes aversive and getting them to 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 then you know, um, experience it again is really difficult. So, I, you know, whenever we introduced something new, we would always say, right, we have to make sure it's a positive experience so that he's got something to an anchor to. And, you know, as he's got older, he's, he's learned that, okay, if something doesn't work the first time, you, you try again. But when he was very young, you know, that was that was not the case. So I remember, you know, him teaching him to ride a bike and saying to my husband, don't let go of his seat, don't let him fall off. You know, he's got to have a positive experience. And we, we both agreed on that. So when it comes to equipping children, there are certain things that are, are absolutely important. So I persisted with the swimming, largely because in Australia, if you don't swim, you're likely drown. And there were, you know, every day with so many pools and backyards and things like that, every day we were hearing about children and, and a lot of them were autistic because they would wander and water is attractive to children. You know, even if they can't swim and they're afraid of it, they're still attracted to it. And, and drownings were common, so it was a life skill. We knew we had to persist with that. And we, we did a, a very, very gentle, on his terms, graded exposure to that, I guess you could call it. And it was a long, long process. And now he swims like a fish, and he sails, and he's a sailor, and it's opened a whole new world of, of you know, um, friendships and activity that he would otherwise not have had access to. So I'm, I'm really glad I pushed, I pushed that. I'm not so glad I pushed with the movies, although now he does attend the movies with some university friends. And, you know, so that probably was a, was a good thing. But I actually feel like I probably could have waited for that. Um, and, you know, but it was a it was a social, you know, it was a, it was an area where he might have lost social activity. Another thing is there's certain things he, he you know, he didn't like to eat. He ate four things for about two years. Um, he had very, very high sensitivity to certain foods, and there were only four things that he, he would eat. And I knew I had to, for his sake of his health, develop a palate on him. So I used a certain amount of uh, graded hierarchy for that as well, and sort of just gently exposing to new things and trying to make them possible. So, yeah, I think it's, I think, it, you know, equipping our children for certain things is, is, is important when they are life, you know, life important things. Um, however, I, I listened to, to Naomi Fisher, and I'll, I will probably I will share the link with you later on if you want to share it with your with your group. But um, we she had concerns about the way it's being used in schools. You know, we have to you know we have to equip children. We have to you know use graded exposure. Um, 
as a therapy for anxiety. So basically, the more you get, you know, the more you get used to it, the more you do it, the more you'll get used to it. And it's based on the idea, and I'll, I'll just read this out to you, that when we're anxious about something, we tend to avoid it, which is very true. And therefore, we do not get the chance to discover that it's as not as scary as we think it is. Okay, that's 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 the basis of this, you know, this conclusion. And it gently and it gradually increases the amount of exposure to the feared situation and the idea that the person becomes less fearful. Now, this works well on things like getting back into, you know, driving after a car accident or phobias of flying or spiders or things like that. And it's even been used with fears of things like balloons and baked beans, she says. But at no point in this therapy is the person forced to confront the things that make them scared. Okay, so my son had a, a, a fear of dogs um, after a friend's dog bit him on the nose, just very gently as a nip play, but it was enough to scare him because he was only little. I did not take him to the pound and put a dog in front of him. But I had to stop him, you know, seeing a dog in the distance and at five years old running straight across a main road to get away from one. I had to stop that happening. So in, in exposure therapy, the person is always in control. Um, and that's what makes it less scary. But I'm not going to, you know, she said, I'm not going to force someone to confront their fear of, of driving on motorways, example. If they think it's a problem, then they're the ones that will decide on it. And that's the problem with exposure therapy is we don't give choice. So we don't have a we don't have a lot of choice with that. So with children, there's a danger that we start to define all of their preferences. And I'm talking preferences now and bearing in mind autistic children might have different preferences. And we frame those preferences as anxiety. And that's our way of getting them to do what we want to do, which is basically just a way of compliance. So the children that don't want to go to school due to anxiety we must then expose them to the thing that they're afraid of. But, and this is really important, anxiety is not the only reason why a person might not want to do something. So, for example, Naomi Fisher, she hates roller coasters, okay? They make her feel physically sick and she vomits. Simple as that. So very quickly, even, you know, even little tiny ones, she, she realised that they weren't for her. Um, so she would avoid them. So... She says, well, I think this is quite funny. Let's say I meet a therapist who tells me that my feelings on roller coasters are due to anxiety um, and that my avoidance of them is making the problem worse. Let's say this therapist tells me that the only cure for me is to do a graded hierarchy of roller coasters. And I don't have a choice about that. First, I'll go and look at a roller coaster. Then I'll sit in one. Then I'll ride a small one. Lastly, I'll ride a big one. And then I mustn't stop riding them. Otherwise, you know, and I must do it every day. Otherwise, I'll get more anxious again. Now, immediately, as a person, you're going to start to feel anxious and she'd start to dread that awful sick feeling um, about getting on a roller coaster. And she would see the, you know, the years out in front of me with roller coaster rides every day. Now, this, apply this to children going to school. And she'd find it hard to sleep at night for fear of the roller coaster the next day. And every morning she'd get up worried about the roller coaster. I'm pretty sure that the sickness wouldn't stop because she gets motion sick in other, thing, in other places too. So pretty soon, she'd start to have a full-blown phobia of roller coasters. I hope this is making sense. And she'd also then have a phobia of the therapist who was making her do it. Um, and she'd start to feel ashamed of her reactions and start to be angry with the person who was making her do this. And then she'd start to doubt herself. And maybe it's all her fault. And then her self-esteem would drop. 
because no one else seems to have a problem with roller coasters. So maybe there's something wrong with her. So the way she feels on a roller coaster, that motion sickness isn't going to change because the root cause of it wasn't anxiety, but it was framed as that because other people wanted to gain compliance for her to actually do it. So if you apply that to school, do you, do you, do you see where I'm going with this? I, I, can, I completely do. And actually, I did a podcast with Naomi a few weeks ago on how anxiety is inbuilt in the school system. And it was very interesting and very thought provoking. The, the whole metaphor of the roller coaster was very interesting to me, because what you I think you're saying is that the child doesn't want to go to school, they're extremely scared of it. They then resent the parent who's making them go, they resent the school experience and they end up with phobias about everything, right? About they, they're phobic to the parent, they're phobic to the school system, they're phobic to everything. Now, luckily in home education, we don't put our child into school, but we do want to allow them to navigate the wider world when they're older in a way that will maximize their integration and happiness. So Diane, as an example, Diane, you're Mm -hmm. a parent of an autistic child. Now Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you want her to be able to integrate in such a way when she's older that she can navigate the social world around her to get the very best of it. So at what what point do you stop honoring her preferences and start trying to get her to adapt? Well, I think for me, it's about balance. So I think you're right. I think we all have to equip ourselves to live in this, in the contemporary world that we live in. But I think there is still something about the social model, if you like, which would lean towards actually society has to, has to flex and adapt a little bit more to the needs of the individual. So if that means, um, Rosa needs to go and, get a job and she needs to choose her employer wisely because that employer will actually understand that actually if she has a lot of you know human interaction in her day she's probably going to need a break you know after doing that so i suppose what i'm saying is it's it's for me it's about yes learning to adapt and learning to have uh, equip yourself but also having the expectation that actually you're a unique individual with unique needs and actually other things also have to adapt to you. So I, I guess that would be my view. So, and it, as Tara says, it's about playing to strengths, I think as well, isn't it? And about not doing actually, you know, why should she, you know, Rosa hates, I don't know, big crowds, big cities, discos, all of that kind of stuff, you know? So we do, you know, so we, we occasionally what, you know, take her to London or something like that. But if she doesn't want to do that, there's no reason in the world she has to do that. You know, she can probably navigate her life reasonably successfully without ever having to do many of the things that she despises. And, you know, I think that's absolutely fine. I agree with that. I mean, there are so many things in this world that I just, we as a family, just choose not to do because it doesn't suit us. So navigation is great if it's a life skill that's essential but it isn't essential that, that, that young people learn how to tolerate loud music so they can go to a nightclub. Like plenty of people get, you know, get through life quite successfully without ever setting foot inside one. And it's not essential that, that you know, young people learn to tolerate sensory, you know, sensory environments because we don't even have to go to the supermarket anymore. You can have your groceries delivered. Um, you don't have to have a um, go out in crowds. There are, you know, very rarely do we, when we have to go shopping, tend to go about three o'clock on a Sunday when things are quite quiet. And that's our choice. 
because we don't like crowds. None of us do. We find it quite overwhelming and then we can't do what we want to do anyway. I, I think it's it's important that we don't mix up choice and, you know, like you said, honouring preferences with not seeing any way around it. Because often we say, oh, we've got to equip them for this. Well, hang on a minute. Can we do this thing that you're talking about somehow differently? And if we can, and it suits the person better, then why do we have to put them through the torture of this graded exposure experience? Uh, I think, you know, I think we have to be very careful about how much exposure kind of therapy, I guess, we do with young people, because actually we run the risk of embedded, embedding further anxiety. Mm. I've not heard of graded exposure, but it sounds pretty horrific. No, it's not. It's actually a very, it's a very, it's, I mean, if you know, it, it, it's a very helpful, in, you know, therapy. It can be if it's done right. But in, with, with graded exposure, you would never put the person in front of the fear, the thing they fear the most, you know, but we, we do this with children. I use the, the school environment as, a, as an example. We do, you know, children who are autistic tend to be more sensorial, sensorially sensitive so um or, or opposite they can be sensorially insensitive where they have a less you know a more muted experience which can also bring difficulty and if you're trying to navigate that because your experience of the world is so different to those around you that's that's exhausting no amount if that's innate in you no amount of exposure it's a bit like Naomi and her roller coaster giving her motion sickness no amount of exposure is going to make the the sensory experience you have any different is going to be the same every single day you might develop strategies to to help you get through the day but it will not be without cost to you so actually what we need to do is look at what environments suit autistic people because very often i remember when we went to school you know my, my son actually did go through the education system but not without cost to him. And, he, you know, I remember going and talking to the teacher and making some suggestions about things. And I gave her a few suggestions that she could use in the classroom. And she was she wanted to get on top of the fact that, that my son would, would call out because he was very, very smart, very academic, and he always knew the answer. And he used to get fed up waiting for the other kids to answer the questions. And I, I kind of understand that, you know. So he would just go, oh, and he would say the answer. So she wanted to stop him doing this calling out mid-sentence when she was talking. So it was just a simple thing that we put a, a, a symbol on the board. And when she took it off, it was a free-for-all. And she called me in later and she said, my goodness, what a difference. So I said, what? She said, not just for your son, but actually the whole class did better because she, she did it as a whole class approach. She was a very, very smart lady. And she said the whole class reacted differently. And every intervention, every suggestion, every support that we put in place that we did as a whole class impacted the whole class and actually the whole class did better but we don't do this we tend to focus on the child who's autistic but actually they're just the beacon they're just the litmus paper for, for all of the you know for, for the for the for the actually the benefits that it would bring to the non-autistic children too so but I think we forget that we overlook it and we think oh we're doing this for the autistic child what about children with ADHD for example that must be quite difficult because that is that is sort of like they have really quite different needs to autistic children so I mean how I always think because I trained as a teacher and I always think it must be exceptionally difficult to accommodate the the whole sort of gamut of neurodiversity because you've got ADHD children that really don't like 
sort of like things to be very structured and ordered and rules. They don't like that. They like big picture. They like creativity. Then you've got autistic children who who prefer things. They want to know what's happening. They, you know, all that. Then you have all the children in between that also have all their own preferences. So I find it like, I find it kind of hard to believe that you could put measures in place that would be great for autistic children, but also great for ADHD children. So I remember growing up, like I said, I went to school in the 70s and the 80s. Um, before the days of national curriculum, before the days of SATs. We, the only exam we had in primary school was an 11 plus if you wanted to do it, um, if you wanted to go to grammar school. But other than that, it was pretty, you know, it was pretty easy going. There was no um, bandings of schools. There was no, I'm getting, I will get to the point. <laughs> there was no, um, there was no uh, data driven education system at that point. Okay. So there was no Ofsted reports and stuff like that. Um, so schools were not afraid in those days. Now, they also weren't as understanding either. However, I do remember being in a, in a classroom and I do remember growing up with uh, other young people who were quite clearly, when I reflect on it, autistic or with ADHD. And I was probably one of those because I was always allowed to do things my way. I was allowed to, this is what we're going to work on. How are you going to approach it? It was, there was topic based, you know, things were, so we would all find that our, our because, because we weren't aiming to, towards, we were aiming towards a learning experience as opposed to, and in the acquisition of knowledge in a way that we could acquire it, as opposed to, this is how I'm going to teach it, this cookie cutter education system, bums on seats, sitting in a row, um, which actually stems from preparing children for factory work. I mean, that's where, that's where it comes from. I remember being much more free range. I remember having being more creative and being allowed to do so and the school were not afraid to allow that to happen and allow that creativity to 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 sort of come out in whichever way they wanted because they weren't being assessed on anything now what we've got now is we've got basically a, a school that is supposed to provide a differentiated education for each individual child's needs and teachers who are supposed to be you know all teachers are teachers of SEN supposedly and they're supposed to deliver this all the time and still make sure that every child knows everything for the SATS paper, teach to the test, make sure that their attendance is high, you know, all of these different markers. And it sits in direct opposition with the kind of more naturalistic learning that young children should be doing. And I'm saying young children because early childhood is my area more, but even right up to the end of primary school, it should be more free form there should be more opportunity for young children to perhaps self-direct a little bit with the scaffolding of, of of the more knowledgeable teacher it's my opinion it's governed by understanding of of development but it's my opinion um and there are probably people out there who go no 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 you have to stick to the rules blah 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 i don't believe in it i guess in the home education world i think you'd find a lot of parents would buy into that very much and um i guess that's ellen the advantage of home education is actually you can work to your individual child or children much more freely perhaps the problem is developmentally i think of i think of my sons growing up in, in australia and and developmentally they don't go to school year one doesn't start until they're six and a half and even that's a little bit early but the rest of the time, it's all about play. They do have places in school that, that they can go, but it's not compulsory and they can come and go as they please. Nobody's taken attendance. It's all fine. And it's all based around play, learning, interaction, social development. 
But so six and a half, that's when you start school. And that's when your bum is on a seat. Children up to that age and probably really near a seven and eight, if, if, you know, if I'm honest, the way that they are developing and, and it will be earlier for some and later for others, because all children are very different, but they need that extra time. They should not be sat at four and a half years old, cross-legged on the floor, learning phonics. Okay, it's, they should be exploring, taking risks. I remember the school teacher, the school head said to me when my son was in what they call pre-primary, which would have been like a pre, um, so it would have been age five, five and a half. So you, I don't know what you want here. She said, we pride ourselves on how many scraped knees, occasional sprained ankle. If they're taking risks and, you know, obviously nothing dangerous, but, you know, if they're taking risks and learning about their bodies and learning about what they can do, that is the measure of good early learning, you know, allowing them that freedom to do that. We don't do that. We don't do that here. I mean, that's the measure of good learning at any age, isn't it? In the home education world, there is a really interesting perspective that play-based learning, autonomous learning is learning that should be throughout the entire age ranges all the way up to sort of university and beyond and I think there's a there's a sort of inclination amongst the school system but also education sort of experts that it that they're being very radical and exciting by sort of thinking we should all be play-based up to the age 11 then at age 11 we should all just sit at desks and do the GCSE curriculum which is kind of depressing however realistically I think when it comes to the school system everyone listening to this really <laughs> is basically going to have opted out of it or be going to opt out of it or already be aware of the major issues within the school system. And I actually recorded a podcast with a, a teacher who's turned, who's become a tutor. And we were talking about the, she was, she was talking about the, the crisis in the education system, not just amongst the children, but amongst the teachers and how there is just a mass exodus of teachers from our education system. So it is, there's no doubt that it is reaching a crisis point um, whether you're a parent, a child or a teacher. One thing I wanted to ask you, Tara, is a number of times you've mentioned that perhaps you you weren't diagnosed as neurodivergent when you were younger, but now you can see that you were. And I think you both mentioned that you are sort of neurodivergent families. Now, I believed, and I may be completely wrong about this, but I thought that autism was a neurological condition where they've actually like mapped it in the brain. They know where it is. They know what it is. All oh, right, you're shaking your head. That, I'm glad about that because that means that I'm wrong because I, I I did think, how can that be if it's all, it also sounds like it may be genetic because there seems to be a lot of elements of, of this kind of generational autism. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Like I'm guessing it isn't neurological. Is it is it genetic? And also you mentioned that there's a lot of gut issues. Is it is it something else then? Okay. So first of all, I want to tell you I'm not a um I'm not a medical person. Okay. I, I teach this stuff at university level, but it's it's my background is development. Okay. So I have a background in psychology and early early child development. But I am not a medic. However, I also do a lot of research. What we know about autism is yes there are some we have seen some differences in brain architecture let's say but everyone will be slightly different we cannot at the moment map they've done gene testing they've done brain architectural testing they it's it we cannot map this to a particular gene to a particular chromosome that we can't we just can't we just don't have that information yet there is no there's no absolute knowledge of right 
that is what autism is and that's where it comes from. It was thought that autism was an anomaly. However, the more we're looking at it, um, the more we are seeing parents gain diagnoses off the back of understanding their children better. And it is not, and I stress not, a bandwagon effect. It is a slow realisation and a synthesis of information of their own experiences that switches on a light and goes, ah, does that make sense? Um, yes, but could I could I come back and ask you a question about the whole bandwagon thing? Yeah. Because that is a really common thing that I hear amongst neurotypical people, is that there's this sense that, I, I, I hear this a lot, which is that we're all a bit autistic. You know, like it, pretty much if you ask the right questions of anybody, we could all be diagnosed with autism. We could all be simultaneously diagnosed as ADHD. And I wonder, like you say, it's definitely not them jumping on the bandwagon. How do you know it's not that? Because <laughs> a lot of people think that it is that. And, and you, you have to be you have to be mindful that, that a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of diagnoses are, are subjective based on the clinician that you're talking to. So you can go to one clinician who will go, no, I think, you know, looking at, they'll do, and I mean, the diagnostic process, if it's done properly, and I have to say a lot of diagnoses are perhaps not done as thoroughly as they should be, um, but if done properly, a threshold is reached. And, you know, the autistic community will tell you that you're either autistic or you're not. And there is no a case of we're all a little bit autistic. It's a bit like saying we are a little bit pregnant. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, but it's, it isn't, is it? Because but, in order to be pregnant, you you have like a chem, like there's actual things in your body. Now you've yeah. said obviously that there aren't. So if you don't know what it is and where it is, like it's really difficult to be sort of categorical, isn't it? Absolutely, and it and it's a minefield. And I, you know, I sit permanently, and I mean permanently, on the fence with this because I don't have enough in, in enough information nobody does at this stage um to be able to say one way or the other but currently how we do it is there is a diagnostic threshold and a clinician makes the decision as to whether or not you are autistic or you have adhd and it's based on a history it's you know for adults it's taking a very very detailed history of their early years it usually goes into if if, if parents are around or siblings will will can contribute as well you know there are there, there's a there's a lot of information that's taken and then it's it's sort of obviously um looked at how how you how you sort of function i guess in 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 life today so diagnoses are really really subjective and you can go to one one person who who will tell you you're autistic or you have ADHD and another person will go well I think you're sub-threshold but there are some perhaps some traits that you know that you carry but that does not make you autistic or or make you um have ADHD so it, it is a it is a medicalized threshold diagnosis that's the best I can say in terms of that and I'm sure there are other people out there who go well hang on a minute <laughs> You know, we can we we could look at it a different way, and there's a, there's a multitude of ways of looking at it. But a lot of families will recognise in themselves, ah, okay, so this explains a lot about my childhood. This explains a lot about my the way I navigate life, and it's a learning process. We're all learning all the time, you know, and that's that's and we should be. And I think from that respect, you know, that's why we see a lot of 
self-diagnosis in which people who cannot be bothered to go down the formalized diagnosis road and why would they when the wait years run into years wait list runs into years um and if they want to do it privately will cost them thousands if they want to do it properly um so people self 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 identify i think is is the word the community prefers to use how helpful do you think labels are because in the hmm. and di- diagnoses and labels because in the home education world i i can safely say having spent many 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 years in the home education world <laughs> i can safely say it fits into two camps you have one camp that um is, feels very empowered by labels very um uh, so joins the clubs, joins the Facebook groups, identifies very much by, with the labels. I'm a parent of an autistic child. Police's language holds on to the identity very, very closely. And then oh, you have, wow. I would say, the other half, which don't like labels, don't see the point of them, think it's a way of of sort of being being forced to conform, noticing the deficits, as you say, society just not accepting individuality, that kind of thing. And and. I actually have friends on both sides and I've met lots of people from both sides in the home ed world and it's very level pegging, you know, like a lot of the arguments are very convincing on both sides and yet they are diametrically different. One thinks you should never diagnose and label because it's unhelpful and it's divisive. One thinks you should definitely diagnose and label because it empowers and it allows individual identity. So... There's a couple of schools of thought. And again, this is another reason why I sit firmly on the fence um, <laughs> with with this. And and it's and largely because it's contextually driven. So there are some aspects where a label is critical and there are other aspects where a label is absolutely devastating. So a label can be both empowering and it can be limiting. And it depends on the context which the label is used. And that's the best I can say. Well, there is a quote that that um, autistic groups who who do like labels because actually it's part of their identity. A bit like being brown-eyed or left-handed, or you know, it's a facet. Um, it's not a totalizing label. It's part of who they are. Um, and it says, "Why do you need a label?" And the answer comes back is. Because there is comfort in knowing that you are a normal zebra and not a strange horse. Because you can't find community with other zebras if you don't know you belong. And because it is impossible for a zebra to be happy or healthy, spending its life feeling like a failed horse. Now, that's from that's a quote from one of the autistic groups who... Um, and I was rapidly looking through it when you were starting to ask me the question because I can never remember it. You know, it's a really good example of why the autistic community have chosen to own the label. They've taken it back because it's been used in, you know, it's, it's, it's deficit laden and they've actually taken it back and owned it. It's a bit like the LGBTQ plus community own, reowning queer. You know, it's it's really important because actually it provides them with part of their identity and it allows other people to understand a little bit. On the flip side, you've also got attitudinal problems with people going, ah, autistic, right, that means you're going to do this, this, this Mm -hmm. and this. 
and you can't do this and you can't do that and then you're too hard work and put you in the too hard basket and you're never going to amount to anything and have no aspirations. So that can be the other side of it. And that happens from school right through to employment. Um, so life chances are limited and things like that. So I think the autistic community are getting wise and I think they are choosing carefully where and when they disclose, you know, that they're autistic. So I think labels are a double-edged sword. And that, that is my philosophical position on that. I'm sorry. It's not really think, answering the question. <laughs> I think um, the the negative aspect that you had for labels was other people's reaction to the labels. But there are definitely um, people that I know that just don't agree with labels as a thing. They don't think that people should be labeled because by labeling, you are emphasizing the difference. And also, why would why do you need a label when you're just you? So Diane, I wondered for you, did you find that labels were particularly helpful, diagnoses and labels were particularly helpful in the school system? And have you found that they've lessened in their importance since you left the school system? Or do you still, are you still like a diagnosis label girl? Or are you on the fence? Or which, where do you, where do you feel? Well, for me, it's it's just about whether that label is going to be helpful. So I'm a pragmatist. So I I, I don't sit on any particular in any particular ideological uh, part of any of it. I, I'm a real pragmatist. I will do what whatever is helpful. So for so for Rosa, a diagnosis, it became clear that a diagnosis would be helpful to get her some additional support. So for you know so for instance, the age she is now. Rosa will need additional time in exams because she can't think under pressure. So she will need some additional time. One of the ways to get that additional time is to have a diagnosis. So for her, it's helpful in, in that sense. So, but for the likes of me, so I could probably quite easily go and get an ADHD uh, diagnosis. So I, I recognize that I have lots of ADHD traits. But for me, there's no reason to do it because I run my own business. I've learned to play to my strengths. I've set my entire life up so that it leans into my kind of ADHD traits rather than trying to fight against it. So for me, a label is not helpful to me. It's neither here nor there. So I would all say so for me, it's just it's an entirely pragmatic decision rather than ideological. And I think that's exactly what parents who don't like labels would say is that they would say that the school system and the the system when you're young forces you into labels in order to get access arrangements and to navigate the school system. And that and that's not allowing the child to then make their decision. So a lot of people say, I'm not going to label them. I'm not going to diagnose them. When they're older, if they want that and they feel that can be helpful, then then they can do that then. So I think that's probably what, what they would say is that is that by playing into the system, you're forcing your child to adopt an, a labelled identity that they may not they, that they may not want. Have you found that Rosa finds it an empowering label? Speaking for her kind of personally, she has found it very helpful. Um, and I think just in terms of understanding herself rather than anything else and being able to have some context around why she can be quite different to to other girls her age, for instance, you know. So she has found it really helpful. But um, yeah, I, I can see that other children may not have that response to it. And I suppose for me is that because we, we're not all at the same level, are we? So for me, it's about my, you know, my daughter without that label would be disadvantaged in the system as it exists. So I guess what I'm trying to do is just level that up a little bit and give her the additional support because we're not all at the same place, you know. Um, 
So yeah, I don't I don't want her to be disadvantaged by something other people cannot notice in her. So therefore, the label has become useful. But I recognise that their labels are problematic. I mean, you know, I work in criminal justice, and people are labelled left, right, and centre, and generally, it's really unhelpful. So I suppose a lot of it is how much control you have over the process of the labelling and the diagnosis. Rosa used to talk about herself having special abilities. And she does. She has special abilities. She is really gifted in particular areas, you know, and, you know, I've read something, I've read some stuff about um, autism as being the next kind of phase of evolution, you know, and I, I, you know, agree with Tara that actually, you know, we desperately need autistic people to, to, you know, come up with the ideas and to pay attention to the detail and to do all the kind of good stuff that we need them to do, you know. Yeah, so I think it's about how things are framed. And if, if you are framing things in a deficit model or in a de you know, deficit framework, then that's not particularly helpful. But actually, if you're framing things as a way of this is how you can understand yourself and where, you know, how you are in the world, and this, this might help you to do that, then I think it, it comes from a slightly different place. I read an interesting analogy, which was, that if you're sort of like at a board table, be like a board meeting table, you want, you need some people with dyslexia and ADHD to have the big ideas, then you need people with autism to get into the detail, and then you need everyone else to implement it. And I think that is such an important way of looking at it, that actually, as a society, we have functioned very well with all these different types of people without having to put labels on it. Um, it's just that we've, we sort of like, I feel like we're kind of in a label world at the moment where where everyone I mean Tara for example you have your pronouns here on the screen our listeners can't see that but you've got your pronouns mm -hmm. she her on the screen and we're all very keen to make sure that our identities are visible and labeled and I wonder whether there's an element that um autism is and and other neurodivergent conditions are being swept along in this kind of need to be identified and labeled it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I, in so many cases, I'm not a fan of labels. You know, I think about, we talk about sort of placing labels on our children and then not giving them choice. That's a really good point. However, labels can be rescinded at any time. So, you know, and, and as an adult, you can choose to engage with it or not. Um, there's no law that says you've got to, you know, mm -hmm. you've, got, you've got to tell people you're autistic. Um, and you could easily, I mean, most adult autistics could choose to just drop the you know drop the the use of the label and just carry on but i think uh, in terms of in terms of labeling we as human beings need to comp we have this need to compartmentalize things to to that's the way we process you know whether you're autistic or not we, we do tend to put things in in categories and boxes and and we do like that um i personally would love to to, to you know the world needs all kinds of minds um and and without it like you said you wouldn't have that board table success i mean you look at you know very successful organizations now actively recruit neurodivergent people um because they see the um the benefits of having that amount of, of difference in the um you know in in the company um that, i mean that actually leads me on to my next question i suppose which is that You've got your pronouns here on the screen. Now, do you think that there's a point and a helpful point at which we would have, for example, your name and autist, autistic next to it, your name and ADHD next to it, my name and 
neurotypical next to it, for example. Do you think that that's something that actually we're building up to that might be quite helpful because it would allow companies to think, okay, this is a person with these talents or, or is that actually just reducing people to like a generic idea of a stereotype? It's tricky, isn't it? Because actually, what are we doing? We, we, are, we, are we activating bias in people if we do that? I mean, I have my pronouns because it's required. And it's, you know, uh, I, I don't really care who someone is, but I don't want to offend someone if they choose, if they, you know, if they choose to have, if it's not visibly obvious to me, um, I don't want to offend someone by saying, yes, he said, when actually it's, it should be she um, or vice versa. I, I want to respect, I guess the the perspective of whoever I'm with and now I've got I've got a sorry to interrupt because I've got a very interesting segue from that which is that I know a couple of autistic children and they absolutely refuse to use pronouns in that way Mm. because you know the whole truth saying thing that you were saying about they actually would prefer to use the pronoun it because as far as they're concerned that is the more um that's the more kind of real pronoun. If they're neither, they should be it. Now, that causes a lot of aggravation, as you can imagine. Now, this brings us back, I suppose, to this idea of at what point do we police our own speak in order not to upset other people? And at what point is that then forcing conformity and masking on our children? Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's an evolving question. And not, not one that I have an answer to because it's, it's, it's still very current. These are the things that, you know, we're, we're grappling with every day. I suppose what I'm saying is that in a world where we are increasingly taught that we need to respect other people and rightly so and think about how we interact with them and there is fluidity about um, how people present themselves and that kind of thing. It must be difficult for autistic children to navigate that because it isn't black and white and we live in a world of increasingly nuanced shades of grey. But not all children who are autistic are black and white. And, and you know, it's they, they, they don't always think in those dichotomous ways. Um, but the ones that do, for example. Yeah, and, and I think but they, they might on certain things. And I think it's it, it's very dangerous to say that they, they think about things like that in, in that sort of black or white way in, in everything. It might just be in one subject. Um, they might have a very strong opinion in one particular subject, but actually f- appear more fluid in other things. Um, it depends. Again, it's, it's contextual. I mean, it's interesting that um, we have this this conversation about he or she, or you know, or, or as, as you said, that the young people would prefer it, um, where autistic people are actually overrepresented in ratio in the LGBTQI plus. I can never remember all that. Sorry, um, um, community. So we have more, and, and I think it was Wen Lawson who said, actually, the reason why it doesn't bother us as adults quite so much is because we we don't get bogged down in the the sort of stuff that's just irrelevant. It's more about the person than it is what gender they adopt. So they, they see past that. You then got to look at, at the children and think, well, maybe it's what they're maybe it's when i'm being controversial here maybe it's what we're instilling in them that's making them rule governed in this way maybe if we were more flexible in our thinking that would instill you know a bit of flexibility as well maybe they've been taught through school you know boys go in this toilet girls go in this toilet we you know it's ingrained in us from the from the the day we start to socialize outside of the family home maybe that's a societal problem 
that brings us very nicely back to the idea the the benefits of home education because of course you you know you can control the sort of uh, the influences that your child receives and they don't go to school and have these very gender normative sort of experiences and you know that is that is one of the bonuses Diane yeah, I was just wondering, Tara, we were talking about kind of cultural norms. I just wondered if um, there were there was anything um, to notice in terms of autism and maybe maybe about diagnosis, but maybe about other things that is culturally specific, you know, what we notice in the Western world to maybe what we notice in other parts of the world and what, what your understanding is of that. So it's funny you should mention that. I remember years ago when, um, when my son was very young, we went to see um, a pediatrician after diagnosis and it was just a routine uh, routine meeting and we didn't see our usual pediatrician we actually ended up seeing someone else and this chap engaged with my son and and they were talking and interacting and and he was only about four and he spent about an hour with him and I just sat there. I just let them go. And he turned around to his desk and he, and he just put one hand on my son's like head or like, like crowned his head. And he looked straight at me straight in the face. And he said, in my country, he would be a great thinker. And I'll never forget that. And this, this chap was from Sri Lanka. And I look at things like, um, the need for eye contact is culturally different in different countries. Yes. If you go to Japan, children are discouraged from having eye contact. And most people probably know that. That's probably, you know, that's very common knowledge. Um, because it's seen as a sign of disrespect. What's to say what's right and what's not right? Mm. Um, and yes, there are cultural differences, Diane. And I'm not worldly enough, unfortunately, to, to know too much about it. What I do know is in countries like New Zealand and Australia, they didn't even have a word for um, autism. They do now. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's Waki Tankawa, or I can't remember now. I'll have to look it up. It's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll find it. It's got a very, but it just means in their own time and space. Oh, I think I've read that, yeah. yeah. Mm. And, and it's a lovely, and, and I, I remember um, seeing a, a couple of Indigenous Australian children playing and um, talking to their families. And I was, we, we, live, we live slightly on the edge of the bush. And um, I, you know, I, I remember looking at this child who was spinning and, 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 engaging with the trees and just playing with nature and being completely unencumbered by anything else no school or you know no formalized school anyway they had plenty of education um and i remember talking to one of the one of the elders about this and you know said do you worry about the future and they said no because you know um this child is everyone's business and we will all see to this child's needs and whatever that child needed the village if you like um the village responded to that um and that child was free to be who they were and it was a beautiful bit of education for me mm. um, and it was only the closer the indigenous community got to westernized living the more anxiety was provoked in families as they were made to feel like their child was broken 
I think a lot of that as well. I would say, you know, people listening will be like, well, that's all well and good, but I don't live in a, in a, in a tribe. But one thing I would say is that from the home education perspective, I think the home education world is a village in that way, because my children were sort of have been sort of brought up and raised in home education and they've never had any exposure to any kind of negative pushback about neurodivergent children. They've met many of them and there's never been any pushback. And actually, I, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but my daughter went to an after school club uh, about a year ago and it, it was, we didn't have a lot of clubs where we mix with school children and, and home ed children. And she actually heard for the first time in her life, she was 14, she heard for the first time in her life, somebody sort of taking the mickey out of an autistic child and using it as a derogatory term. She had never heard it. She got in the car with me. She cried for half an hour. She had never been exposed to it. And I think the home ed world is a village in that way. And we don't, you know, if anyone's listening and maybe their child is still a, still in school, I would say, like, when you enter the home ed world, obviously communities are different all over, but I have never experienced any negativity about any kind of neurodivergent child mm -hmm. ever in the home ed world. It sounds, sounds to me like the prejudice just isn't there. And that's exactly, let's call it out what it is. It is prejudice. Um, it is discrimination. Um, it is the unwillingness to adopt somebody else's perspective. When I mean, you talk about lack of empathy, if anybody's got a lack of empathy, it's the non-autistic population. Let me just say, let me come back to the empathy things. I've wanted to say it for about an hour. Autistic people have empathy in spades. In fact, largely they have, it was a misunderstanding and it is an actual myth that um, autistic people uh, don't have um, empathy. I mean, they, they just have a lot more emotional empathy rather than the cognitive or compassionate empathy that we would, you know, we would expect with a level of maturity. They feel, they physically feel other people's feelings. Mm. I remember taking my son to school and saying to them, if his mate gets hurt, because they were saying, oh, you know, he was attention seeking. No, if his mate gets hurt he, and he cries, it's because he doesn't know what to do with those overwhelming emotions that he feels for his friend. And you need to understand that he's experiencing the pain of someone else um, in an emotional way, not in a cognitive way or in a perhaps more detached, compassionate way that we understand it. You know, autistic people will tell you, that even as adults, their emotional empathy is sometimes so overwhelming, which is why engaging with other people and, and having eye contact can be physically painful because they're experiencing it in others. And a friend of mine who's autistic said, that's why we make poor counsellors in terms of, you know, for, for non-autistic for non people, but actually great counsel for, for, for other autistic people. That's certainly something that I've noticed is that perhaps they don't, they're not so good at the kind of communicative social nicety empathy but they are feel so much empathy like inside and they show it in so many different ways but as a society we've got so stuck on this idea that empathy is only shown in one way which is like giving them a hug giving you a cup of tea and then like having like oh no how awful for you and you may get the hug and you may get the cup of tea you almost certainly would get the cup of tea with an autistic person actually but it's it's like we get stuck in how we think empathy should be shown and if it's not shown in a particular way they're not feeling it and i i mean as a, a you know completely neurotypical family i find that deeply frustrating that we cannot open ourselves up to all these different expressions of how people are feeling absolutely and it does show a narrowing of the range of our own emotions, you know, as, as perhaps, you know, non-autistic people, you know, if we're not able to, 
to to truly deeply empathize in that way it becomes superficial you know it's, it's a routine that we go through oh you poor thing cup of tea sit down hug you know how much depth is in that but if someone sits down and cries with me they're feeling it they understand me um and i think that's something we forget so some of the perhaps neuronormative um social responses could do with a little autisming up i think <laughs> I like that. Is that a phrase? I like that. So is there anything else anyone would like to say? I think there's just one thing I say. We've talked a lot today um, about autism, but we've talked about the type of autism that, um, you know, that is um, not accompanied by perhaps a severe intellectual difficulty or um, an intellectual disability. Um, We've talked about the type of autism largely about people who are likely to grow up and self-advocate um, and I think, you know, we've been very positive because uh, I feel positive about it. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded by a quote by Francesca Happe, who's a brilliant a neuropsychologist. And she said in a conference, she said, um, pure autism never comes to clinic. And what she meant by that was when you strip away all of the other things that impact autistic people, whether they have a, you know, whether it's an intellectual dis- disability, whether it's, it's social difficulties, and you just look at the preferences and the abilities of the individual, it's not problematic to them and it's not problematic to anybody else. It's only when you layer on neuronormative expectations and you layer on other co- uh, co-occurring conditions such as a, a disability of some description, um, an intellectual disability, that's when difficulties start to arrive and I think we we have to be very careful not to negate the very very real experiences of families and of individuals who have a constellation of different things that are impacting them because it's very easy for us to sit here and be glib and positive about autism when it's in its purest form when we're just looking at it as as a strengths-based difference but actually it's not always like that and I just wanted to make a footnote of that because there are families out there who who are are really doing it tough and I'm very aware I'm acutely aware of those I think that's such a valid point because quite often in home ed Facebook groups um someone may come on and say they're really struggling with their autistic child and and they do tend to get a barrage of you know it's brilliant being autistic you know let them be autistic it's brilliant and I always feel that there must be this poor mother somewhere who gets off Facebook and feels that they've had their experience completely negated and I mean I've been doing some trauma training recently and obviously like when you experience shame following on from trauma the the worst thing that you can do is cognitively sort of say to them oh but there's no reason why you should feel shame because then they feel ashamed about their shame and it's a bit the same with that experience isn't it yeah exactly and I I just I'm very aware I mean I have a you know I I have a number of of friends who some of whom have quite young autistic children who are still struggling with you know daily things like self-harm um head banging to a, a dangerous effect where the child needs to wear a helmet with fecal smearing on a daily mm-hmm. basis, with incontinence, communication that is um, that is so so different and restricted that you know connection is is really hard for families, um, and that is you know, we we must and it must be hard for the child too. So and we don't know because the connection's not there. So you live with that fear of not knowing, as and there's no there's no cer- there's no closure of the circle. So it's really important that we 
and and maybe that's a that's a podcast for another the other side of autism that perhaps that is mm-hmm. less talked about the the non-speaking the the very very different aspects of autism that can be out there and I think we need to be honest about that as well because that would be autism with as opposed to mm. just autism I would love to do another podcast on non-verbal autism. I think that would be brilliant because actually that is almost uh, unspoken of in the home ed world. And I think, think that's a real shame. What about conditions like Asperger's and that kind of thing? I mean, where does, because I know that that's not a term that's used very much anymore. Where does that fit into this discussion? When they redid the uh, DSM-5, uh, um, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, that is used for, for diagnostic purposes. It's most, that's the American one. We use ICD here in, mm-hmm. in the UK a lot. In the DSM, there was a, a merging of, the, um, of a lot of the different autism-related conditions. So things like PDD-NOS, so that's a pervasive development disorder not otherwise specified, which is basically where... A clinician has looked at a child and decided they're not quite threshold enough for autism, for an autism diagnosis, but too many traits to um, warrant um, being ignored and as neurotypical, so being considered neurotypical. So you, you mustn't ignore this. There's, there's something here, but, you know, um, and then there's other things like Asperger's syndrome, which has been subsumed under the autism umbrella. Now, that, that's created quite a division within the autistic community because there are some people who are Aspergic who wish to still identify yes. Asperger's mm. um, and others who are happy to be under the autism umbrella. But they basically, so what you now have is, this is when you go back to labels, you now have a label of autism, which tells you absolutely nothing about an individual person. That's where your label becomes a problem um, because what are we talking about here? It becomes irrelevant. The, la- the name autism becomes completely irrelevant at that point. Is there, <laughs> is there an argument for niching down then with the... With the... They've gone the other way. So yeah. they, they've decided to go the other way. I have no reason. I have no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still not 100% clear if they've included Rett's and childhood disintegrative disorder in there. Yeah, it's all it's 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 gone completely the other way so i don't know is the answer I, is it I, also the case that some areas will diagnose some things and some areas will subsume that under the autistic kind of label generic label so some areas will diagnose something like pathological demand avoidance as as a, as a standalone diagnosis and some some areas don't do that clinically pda doesn't exist Mm. Okay. Um, it is a created label by the community. But they're all created labels, aren't they? Exactly. <laughs> because somebody somewhere in the medical world hasn't ratified it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but that's, mm. you know, that's, yes, it, yeah, clinically yeah. it doesn't exist. Mm. However, some places are, it's a, it's a profile under, yes. the, under the umbrella of autism. But we're starting to realise that actually PDA can exist outside of autism Mm. it doesn't have to go hand in hand with it Mm. so um it's a movable feast i think is the answer for that one and i don't know where it's going to go next is it changing very rapidly the academic world and the scientific world around neurodivergence nothing moves fast in the academic world (laughs) um (laughs) i think you can vouch for that die can't you um 
it's apart great... from deadlines for your thesis they move yeah, very well, fast yeah. <laughs> that's moving really quickly yes and no it is changing fast within social culture we're, we're starting to get a lot more information and people are being much more open-minded in terms of medical changes well the dsm updates every what 10 years or so yeah, absolutely. it's not very quick um Yes, there's stuff going on in the background, even now, because there's a backlash against what they did with autism. I couldn't tell you what what the next steps will be. It, it Sometimes things seem to move quick, and other times it's a glacial pace. It's difficult, Eleanor. I don't know is the answer. Must be frustrating when you've got Frustratingly a child Frustratingly so, yeah. Yeah must be really frustrating actually I mean because when I was teaching like 20 years ago Asperger's was the thing that everyone had and and then suddenly it disappeared and I would have thought if you were someone who was sort of raised with that identity that then have that identity taken away Mm. from you I would think would be quite disempowering actually Mm. almost like oh you don't you know you spent you you must spend time reconciling yourself to these labels Mm. and then by the time you've got into your 30s and you're empowered by it suddenly it's been taken (laughs) off you give it back what about all my T-shirts that had like proud Aspie on and stuff like that? You know, I think it's a bit crap. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So thanks very much, Tara. That's been such an interesting discussion today. So we really appreciate your expertise. Thank you for listening to Home Education Matters. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today. Please join our Facebook group, also called Home Education Matters. And um, any links that we provide will be in the comment of the Facebook group. Thanks very much. It's been lovely chatting today. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.